Welcome back. This is the second half of episode 18, The Clown is Sewed. Um, uh, so the first half of this episode was mostly focused on me waffling about my life and then a very long and not at all dry or disinteresting discussion about clowns and the history of clowns. Um, so, so now this second part is going to focus on clown-related media reviews. Um, so if you want to check out the history of the clown, uh, then go back to the first part of this episode. But if you're just more interested in the uh, news and reviews malarkey uh, connected to clowns, uh, then check out this episode. Okay, here we go. Starting off with our review of the new Joker film. What kind of coward would do something that cold-blooded? Someone who hides behind a mask. I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a comedy. So the Joker, yes, yeah, so I went to see the Joker quite recently. I uh, enjoyed it to some extent. I'll give you more of my opinion in a moment. Uh, just some background to the film. There was a lot of controversy and a lot of hype swirling around the film, uh, mostly surrounding the fact that um, some people said that the trailer made it look like it was going to be very incel friendly. An incel is an involuntarily celibate person. That is some guy who basically just can't get laid and gets very angry and bitter about that fact and sometimes talks to other incel people on forums and gets really really angry and then goes out and kills people in mass shootings and that has happened on a couple of different occasions. Just a quick footnote here obviously there's way more to incels than that there's all sorts of stuff to do with red pill and black pill and the whole subculture is fascinating disturbing uh, but we don't actually have time to get into that today. So of course the fear was going to be this was going to show Arthur Fleck a put upon white outcast dude who eventually becomes the mass murdering joker and that that would be a kind of glorification of that. In actual fact it seems like a lot of those fears were more or less unfounded it certainly was unfounded um, so far in terms of the reaction there has been no mass shootings or anything like that connected with the film since it's released as some people were fearing in America in particular um, also it seems um, like the character the depiction of Arthur Fleck that is um, the pre-Joker Joker played by Joaquin Phoenix um, he is played sympathetically but it'd be wrong to say that he is the hero of the plot either um, he's played in a very very nuanced way in which we, we do feel sorry for him but at the same time his actions are also um, not condonable. In fact, as some observers have pointed out, the film is less to do um, with uh, disenfranchised white people as it is to do with the, the disenfranchised working class. And the film definitely seems to be more about class struggle and how class struggle can intersect with a personal struggle in a kind of explosive manner. And I'm going to look at that in a second when we talk about the plot more broadly. Uh, the film has been really um, well received, generally speaking, in terms of the acting performance of Joaquin Phoenix um, and um, also in terms of its style it is really re reminiscent of kind of gritty uh, 1970s style films and um, takes a lot from films like Taxi Driver you talking to me and the king of comedy <laughs> really <laughs> Well. in terms of elements of its plots um, but also in terms of its aesthetic it is really a very beautifully shot film uh, wonderfully acted and um, uh, very well rounded and realised a little bit too long I would say I feel like it could have cut to the, the chase at some points uh, a bit sooner but generally really really well made and to be honest with you 
if you've seen the trailer, you, you've kind of seen it. You've certainly kind of gotten the vibe for what the um, the aesthetic is going to be. Uh, you've you've gotten some really nice little bits of performance. Uh, you get a little bit of music in there, and then that could save you a whole bunch of time and not having to go to the cinema for hours and hours on end. What's the runtime of it, Ashley? 122 minutes. You could save yourself two hours. That is definitely that's definitely too long. It did not need to be that long, uh, by any means. But that being said, things that I thought were really cool about the Joker, besides just the aesthetic look of it um, and the amazing performance from Joaquin Phoenix um, is uh, that it's playing around with a really interesting theme the intersection between a political struggle in this case a kind of a class struggle and a personal struggle Arthur Fleck you know he struggles with mental illness um, he's very depressed all the time he wants to be a comedian he wants to make people laugh but he doesn't really understand comedy you know what I'm starting to see a lot of similarities here oh jeez oh no um, Fleck has all his own personal struggles with depression with his sense of identity um, with his mother and so forth and perhaps with his per perhaps um, estranged father issues as well he has no interest in the political struggles that are going on in Gotham the struggles that are going on in Gotham at the time are basically class based struggles um, there's a there's a trash uh, what do you call it, a garbage collection strike on there seems to be lots of tension between um, the disenfranchised poor and the very wealthy rich and that is just hinted at very subtly throughout the entire film then Arthur Fleck in response is, is there's some guys on a train start bullying a lady who's next to him and then start bullying him and he overreacts because he's upset um, about a whole bunch of stuff and he shoots the three of them and then that triggers these um, class riots within Gotham City where people take on the mantle, they take on the clown mask and they start protesting uh, against the city management or government or whatever it is. He becomes their symbol. And this is interesting because it connects back to some of the Christopher Nolan um, ideas um, from the second and third film where they want Harvey Dent to be a symbol for hope and it's better for him to remain as a symbol so the logic goes um, than for the people to really know who he was in the same way the Joker the Arthur Fleck character becomes a symbol for this class rebellion this class revolution that's happening even though ultimately in his origins he had no interest in that and this is really interesting because this obviously really happens in history as well you have certain characters um, if you look into their background they're not necessarily massively politically motivated um, although perhaps after the fact they may claim that they always were they're just in the right place at the right time and they want to further frequently they want to have their own you know uh, money power glory all, all that kind of malarkey and they get to head up revolutions or they're just in the right place in the right time and then they become the symbol uh, for the revolution and of course history is written backwards so the history that is written about them writes as, as if they had always planned this all along so that's really interesting so we can kind of see Joker in the Christopher Nolan movies as this guy who is an anarchist and his ever-shifting backstory implies that he always wanted this. You know, he always wanted this this sort of state of anarchy, anarchy to incur. Whereas the Joker film, as, as an origin story, sort of shows you that that might be self-mythologizing done by the Joker at a later stage. And maybe in his original state, all he wanted was to have people, you know, laugh at his jokes or something like that. So that's a that's a really interesting little concept um, that is beautifully and very simply, I would say, uh, not, not as a criticism, executed within the film. I don't think I've actually seen it illustrated in film before. And I just thought that was, it was really, really nicely done. 
Is it, is it worth two hours, though? Is it worth two hours of your time of walking Phoenix being like, nobody likes my jokes? Um, uh, I don't know if it is or not. Um, another theory that I heard on the Chapo Trap House podcast, um, I only just started listening to that the other day. My friend Janie put me onto it. Uh, it is um, uh, an interesting kind of uh, political, cultural podcast. They seem to have a very kind of um, anti-capitalist, kind of Marxist, um, combined with anti-establishment, not giving a fuck sense of humor or sensibility. I uh, don't always agree with everything they say, but really, really funny and can be quite insightful as well in some points. But one of the lads on there was saying that he loved the Joker film because he thinks the film is very symbolic of the idea of class struggle and anti-capitalist movements being subverted or destroyed by um, uh, people falling into self-obsession and nihilism and how that is sort of built into the system. Um, So, for example, you know, um, Fleck uh, lives in this really unequal city. It's not just him uh, that is disenfranchised by it. Um, There's also other different things to hint at, like his mental care worker, the other people who live in his crappy building, um, uh, you know, stuff on the news, people talking about, you know, garbage not getting collected. You know, all of these indicators should be telling him, you know, that there is a communal issue, there's a class issue that needs to be addressed. So this should, in a way, trigger, the argument goes, his class consciousness and get him to unite with other people to fight for those things. Instead, it makes him feel alienated and more alone and more isolated. And so he kind of falls into a type of nihilistic despair. And that's what this guy was saying. He thought that the film was was talking about. Now, of course, actually, as the film goes on, it kind of shows an unlikely scenario where that is reversed through sort of these chance occurrences in terms of, as as I just discussed, in terms of the Joker eventually becoming a head of a sort of a a class movement. But anyway, uh, in its initial um, uh, fucking half, I suppose, it really seems to support that argument. The reason the guy on El Chapo House thought that this was was so brilliant as well is because he was saying that the film is so clearly about class struggle and class inequality and income inequality and things like that. And yet, he claimed that the, the left... by focusing on kind of identity politics and, and individual identities in particular, they had completely ignored or, or been blinded to the class struggle message within the film itself. So his argument was that their obsession with it from this identity politics point of view, that is to say the many articles that were written about it being about white male disenfranchisement and incels, put those initial interpretations into the media, then people like incel-like characters are more likely to glom on to that reading of the film and themselves fall deeper into nihilism and much like in the film not tap into what they should be tapping into which is class consciousness which is realizing that their disenfranchisement uh, is actually a, a class issue is is is, a, is an income issue um, and that they should be uniting with other people uh, as Arthur Fleck should have been in the film in order to fight for you know better rights whatever it is you know social equality blah 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 as opposed to forming into nihilism and and finally he said that you know in the 70s films this is this idea that there's more independent cinema they're less capitalist less market driven filmmaking was happening at that stage modern day films have to be superhero films because those are the only ones that make money for the capitalist system again he thought it was another delicious hilarious level of irony that the only way to make a film about all these issues about class consciousness was to make a gritty 70s film but pretend that it was a superhero film he was saying that actually the film is this sort of beautiful sort of self-reflecting 
ball of mirrors um, that is about how class consciousness is destroyed with an obsession with identity and in particular um, self-identity that leads people down a path of nihilism away from class consciousness which allows capitalism to continue marching on and you know he would say chewing up victims Um, and I just I mean I'm not sure I agree with that as a reading but I just thought it was a really really fascinating reading of the film so uh, I mean you know the whole thing it's 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 a good film it's too long if you like if you're like into like really good performances you'll like it because Joaquin Phoenix is really good okay that brings us on to it and when I say it I mean it part two because I didn't review it part one but it part two is now out in the cinema and it is a clown movie we didn't stop it the clown <laughs> for 27 years I dreamt of you so now moving on to the second clown movie currently out or at least was when I was recording this 200 years ago um imagine 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 if this was still floating around 200 years from now just somewhere in the dark bowels of whatever is left from the nuclear uh, global warming uh, world war 3 obliterated hellscape of the future just somewhere deep down there in the hidden piles of internet somebody crawls across the Oh look, we've we've located it. The voice, a voice from the past. Is it somebody? Will they be telling us about what the morals and ethics of the past were? Will they be telling us about the the future, the cultural beliefs of the time? Is there some is there some clue here that can help us solve the problems that the currently radioactive caveman people uh, of the future now face? Is there some secret message we can get from the past that can help us survive in this new soylent green hellscape future? No, it's a review of the second part of the IT film franchise from 2019. You're welcome, future zombie hordes. Damn you! God damn you all to hell! So yes, I saw the first IT film. I thought the first IT film was very, very well done. Uh, slightly too long, uh, but generally a really fantastic balance between being genuinely very scary in parts, but also very funny in other parts. The chi- child actors, um, also many of them cast on Stranger Things, uh, were just hilarious. And that hilarity was really, really important in terms of getting a tonal balance um, between um, you know scary and funny so that when the scary bits land, they are very scary and you don't just get immune to shock after shock after shock. I also thought it was a really good idea to to separate the part where they are already grown up as adults from the part where they are children and the first um, uh, installment of It worked really really well definitely recommend you check that out the second installment of It um, is uh, not as good I would say uh, by a million miles or so um, because um, here's the thing I just jump straight to the, the, the crux of the matter clowns are scary uh, in particular to children so as discussed in the previous section you know childhood fears of clowns are sometimes really deep and really embedded in people's psyches so when we see a clown chasing a child it allows us to tap into the mindset of a child and how scary and frightening and as awful that could be when, when you see an adult getting chased by a clown you think just just 
turn around and be like, hey clown, fuck off. The second reason why the um, second installment of It is not as scary as the first is down to the actors, right? There is a rule with horror films that you generally try to cast unknown actors for horror films. And the reason for this is, unlike with other genres, for some reason, uh, when it comes to horror, if we can identify the face of the celebrity in the scene, it takes away from the scare factor because we associate them with being in other films, we associate them with the persona of the actor itself, and it's, it's kind of been shown that this takes away from the scare factor. Now, when it came to the little kids in the first um, se- series, some of them were unknown actors, so that, that holds, but also some of them were actors that were known, but they were known for basically identical roles that they were playing in Stranger Things. It's not as scary when you see Jessica Chastain. It's not as scary when you see Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live. There's certainly no fear factor or scare factor when one of the characters is Ziggy from the second season of The Wire. That's right, if anyone can remember the younger brother, Zig, um, from The Wire, the guy who had a pet duck with a diamond necklace. Like I'm the only guy in South Balmer that ever tried to win the affections of the farm man. Uh, he is also one of the grown-up versions of the kids. So that just makes it all a lot less scary. And in fact, the problem is the film knows that it's not as scary when the clown is after the adult versions of these people. That is why, even though this is the adult installment of the film, there's an awful lot of flashing back to when they were kids. And the problem with that is, unlike in the first installment, now when we flash back, there's another level of danger removed because we know it's a flashback. We know it's an adult having the flashback. So whatever happens, the kids are not going to die in that scene. So even now, when in this new version, when the children are under threat, there is no real threat because we know they grow up to be the adults that are still alive and fighting the clown again. The final thing that makes this film just not quite as scary as the first one, it was there in the first one, but it really, perhaps it just seems even increasingly ludicrous in the second one, is the clown seems to be totally 100% able to kill, like, all the other children, all the other characters at once, except for these five guys. You know what I mean? There's apparently a river full of bodies that somebody has like this flashback dream about in one sequence of all these other kids um, that the it clown has murdered. But for some reason, he just can't get these five. And there's no real reason why he keeps letting them get away other than the fact that furthers the plot. And as the film goes on, this just just becomes increasingly uh, obvious. So for all these reasons, it's not that scary. And when you remove all the scare factors from this scary clown film, what you're left with is a lot of world building. Boring, boring, tedious world building. Um, there's one part uh, where a blood-covered skateboard comes rolling down the stairs towards James McAvoy and Jennifer Chastain. And Jennifer Chastain asks, should we wa- run? And uh, James McAvoy says, hey, it's Derry. I'm getting used to it. And yeah, everyone in the audience is like, yeah, we're getting used to it too. We're getting used to scary things happening and then there being no real sense of threat. Um, so yeah, this this sucks. And I mean, at the end, oh, the end, there's so many ends. And oh, have we killed it? No, we haven't killed it. No, we're going to kill it. Oh, we haven't killed it. And and then at the end, they're just like, oh, you know, spoiler alert, right? But whatever. They're just like, oh, you, you know what's going to happen. They have to, like, stand up to the clown and not be afraid of it. The thing that, that, that everybody 
in the entire cinema knew was going to be the end part. You know, even if you haven't read the book, you know that's what's going to happen. Uh, and then they do, and then that's it. And even after that happens, then it has another ending when they're kids again, and another ending where they're grown-ups again. It just, it's very much, it's very much in love with its own lore and its own world-building, and that stuff is not fucking interesting. Nobody cares about that. We just came to see scary clown monsters go boo. I will say the one thing that is truly horrifying and terrifying about it is the one or two scenes uh, that they clearly did not shoot when they were shooting the original installment with the younger children um, and instead decided to um, add into the second installment. But of course, the kids have already grown up. So for some of the scenes that they forgot to shoot or didn't think to shoot back then, they have clearly had to use CGI to recreate um, some of the children for those scenes and initially in some of the scenes it's not noticeable uh, but there's one scene in particular where they're in this um, under underground cave base thing that they've built in the forest and it's 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 just it's deep deep into the uncanny valley of creepiness and and I have to say that was probably the scariest thing in the whole film was those uncanny valley versions of the child actors so it uh, I would say give it a miss but do see the first it and if you haven't seen the initial uh, made for television um, Tim Curry version of it definitely see that as well definitely go and see that instead of both of these um, because that is equal parts like genuinely terrifying and just hilariously 90s made for TV bad editing choices um, you know there's, there's the, the section where they all meet up in the Chinese restaurant oh, it's just there's just some wonderful cheesiness in that film, as well as it being genuinely, genuinely terrifying in parts. Right then, television shows, clown-orientated te- television shows. Um, uh, so American Horror Story is in its eighth season now. It's something I've been meaning to get around to watching for ages. So I said I would start with the fourth season of Freak Show, which is set inside of a freak show, but obviously a freak show kind of has a sort of a circusy, clowny vibe. And I knew just from seeing stuff on the internet uh, that there was in fact an evil clown in American Horror Story Season 4 Freak Show. Uh, so what do I think about it so far? I'm not finished it yet. Uh, it is good, definitely. Uh, the, the the look, the tone, the sort of period piece of, I think it's set in the 1950s, um, uh, and just the, the acting is superb. Everything about this I think is fantastic so far, um, and uh, so I, I recommend it from all those points of view. The only thing I would say about it um, uh, is that it's like... It's like lots of stuff on TV. I'm like, this is this is too long, you know? Which is just like, some people really like, really just enjoy watching, like, actors acting really well and kind of, you know, just stories kind of developing and meandering a lot that are well shot and that are, are, are well executed. Like, they they like that. They just enjoy that. With, with they, they don't get annoyed if it is, we might say, inefficient um, or, or meandering. They, and they also don't care if it doesn't really build towards a cohesive, um, you know, pinnacle or story point or, or whatever it is. Now, um, I, I'm not saying that um, Freak Show doesn't have um, a cohesive story or, or, or end point because I haven't got to the end of it yet. Um, but just just like with lots of tv shows these days i just feel like you know people just are just enjoying the company of these characters which is something that people say a lot and i'm like 
Fuck these characters. It's a story, you know? It's supposed to go somewhere. It's supposed to be something. For me, it's just like I want, um, whether they're television shows or whether they're um, uh, movies or whatever it is, like, I, I, I like spending time with characters that are interesting, but that time, just spending it with them is, is feels like a waste unless that's also building into a story. You're not just building character for the sake of character. It's building into further... Um, um, you know, elaborations and growths that are happening in the story, which ultimately is moving towards some kind of a coherent conclusion. Not saying that is true necessarily about American Horror Story. I haven't watched the end of this freak show thing. It's just like with all television shows, I'm like, God, this episode could be half as long. You know what I mean? This, we could, or, or you know, oh, we could have lost the fourth episode and it would be just exactly the same. But of course, to some extent, presumably, there is actually a market incentive to make TV series longer than they need to be and I I just think that that is in direct um, combat or contradiction against um, the artistic impulse of making something good. That's just my opinion, though. I could be wrong, but I'm not wrong, am I? Because I'm always right about everything. Right. Huh. If you occasionally hear the odd splash, splash, it's because there's a leak in my ceiling. I'm not leaking onto others. Others are leaking onto me. Leak onto others as you would have them leak onto you as they say. Right! Moving on to clown music. Now don't worry, it's not just going to be 2019's top 5 Calliope-based hits. Uh, we're going to look at clown-adjacent or clown-related music, and no discussion of clown-related music would be complete without the inclusion of insane clown posse. I have to admit, I have never before listened to Insane Clown Posse. I started listening to them when I was trying to research different clown-related music um, to do for uh, this episode, and I'm still fairly new to the whole ICP uh, scene. But I have to say, um, although I'm not like... I'm not super into the music yet, the whole lore and the culture around Insane Clown Posse is insane and really really interesting so who are insane clown posse insane clown posse are made up of two rappers violent j and shaggy two dope uh, they are both two white guys who came up in inner city detroit in and around the same time that eminem did um and initially they were more interested in uh wrestling and the two of them were actually amateur wrestlers for a while as um teenage high school dropouts however they then started to get really interested in rap music and um as they say in interviews themselves there was a bit of a conflict where they weren't sure if they were going to go with wrestling or go with rap music but then eventually they decided to move entirely into rap music now they released a couple of um, EPs I believe under the name Inner City Posse and this was back when they still had some kind of um, gang affiliation and an Inner City Posse was actually a kind of a gang as well supposedly now that history is all a bit fuzzy a bit hazy um, to what extent they were a gang it's 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 not actually that clear however at that time um, they, they needed something that was going to separate them um, from other other groups. So this is when they decided to put on the face paint. They were actually inspired by a hype man of theirs who had, had put on this uh, clown face paint and um, they decided that that was going to be one way that they would distinguish themselves and apparently after meeting and discussing this upon re returning home that night, um, uh, Violent J uh, had a dream in which 
um, a traveling carnival appeared to him and um, he, he basically used this whole dream to inspire the philosophy behind what would become the dark carnival mythology that would inform all uh, or many of the um, Joker cards albums that they would put out over the coming years. As part of the transformation, they also decided that they would get rid of the name um, um, Inner City Posse because they wanted to, to move away from the whole gang thing, but they said they'd keep the initials, so they changed it to Insane Clown Posse to be in keeping with the face paint and the dream slash vision that Violent J had of this dark, mystical carnival. They put out their first record as um, Insane Clown Posse uh, in 1992, and that was called The Carnival of Carnage, and that was the first um, album in their suite of six uh, Joker cards-inspired albums. Uh, to start with, it, it um, they basically pressed their own records. They were selling you know, tapes out of the back of a van, the usual kind of story. Um, it got a little bit of play in and around Detroit, um, and they slowly built up a fan base over time um, that expanded from Detroit outwards in, in your classic kind of, you know, um, story that the, the, the lots of uh, rappers and other musicians, the trajectory that they normally follow. Thematically, a way that they would distinguish their music from other rap music out there was to make it basically inspired by the circus and inspired by what is also known as horrorcore music. So their songs are about really exaggerated, over-the-top, violent, horrible kind of stuff, but musically, sonically, and visually, and symbolically inspired by the aesthetics of carnival and of circus. So it really is a very unusual um, kind of uh, a proposition in terms of rap that really distinguished them from other groups at that time. So what I find really fascinating about the Insane Clown Posse is, is and that actually connects them back to this idea of clowns and maybe back even to Comedia del Art, is two things. So one is this idea of morality play. Each one of the cards, each album in this series of, of two series of six albums, essentially kind of function as morality plays. They focus on certain issues um, uh, around um, basically evil, temptation, damnation kind of stuff. So, for example, one of the albums focuses on taking excessive risks with your life, and the songs are gory and horrible and over the top. Um, but the, the message, you might say, is that this is what you don't want to do with your life. So they kind of fo they function as morality plays in a similar way that some of the earlier Comedia del Art plays and perhaps even pre predating the Comedia plays would have done. Um, the second thing is exaggeration. The characters in these um, uh, songs and these albums are over-the-top exaggerations. They're, they're, they're much in the same way that the Comedia characters were exaggerated versions of real people. So again, there's kind of a connection there. And of course, the whole aesthetics of, of Carnival and Circus are there as well, which is, is really fascinating in a way. In fact, um, this series of albums that kind of remind me a lot of the song Guilty Conscience by Eminem and uh, Dr. Dre, except as opposed to just being focused on one song, it's spread out over multiple, multiple albums. The second thing that is really, really fascinating about um, Insane Clown Posse is that they sort of look like... <laughs> demented evil Satanists really if you looked at them just superficially from the outside and they are, are, are much reviled in many ways but actually um, uh, on the completion of the first um, six uh, Joker's Cards album uh, in the sixth album it's revealed that really the sixth card is God and they've said this in interviews themselves like all the violence the sex the, the horrible stuff is, is the language of um, the street to get people's attention but ultimately it's to pull them in to show them all 
this horrible stuff, this real stuff, but then to make them reflect on their own lives so that they can escape from that themselves. So there's actually a kind of a, a religious message underlying all of the insane clown posse's work, which is just really, really interesting. Now, they're not explicitly Christian. Um, or, or in fact, they're not, they're not explicitly any religious group. They just have a sort of, I don't know, whatever, a pantheistic kind of philosophy. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to work out exactly what the insane clown posse are talking about, but they, are, they do come across as very genuine and enthusiastic when they do talk about it. And this connects to a third, well, I think originally I said there was only two things that was really interesting, but anyway, to the third aspect of the insane clown posse um, culture more so than the music that I just found really, really interesting. And that is Juggalos, right? So um, on the second EP that they released, um, there's a song on there called Juggala, as in like juggler, but spelled with an A. And on stage, I'm not sure if it was Shaggy or, or, or Violent J, but one of them referred to the fans as Juggalos all the fans seem to really like this. So from there on, all um, Insane Clown Posse ICP fans were referred to as Juggalos. And there's this huge movement of, of there's this whole, whole community of ICP fans. And community does seem to be the word for it. And when they talk in, in interviews and when you see interviews with these fans, what they talk about is this real sense of community and connection between Juggalo fans. And it's they're not just white people. They do have quite a diverse fan group. And what they talk about is sort of about being quite outcasty sort of people but unified through their love of this insane crazy semi-religious disgusting over-the-top violent fucking circus music um and this all comes together in something that is called the gathering of the Juggalos, which is a massive Juggalo event. It's a concert, but it's not just concerts, and um, that's been happening since 2000, uh, since the year 2000. So it's almost coming up on its 20th year anniversary, where all Juggalos get together. And at these Juggalo events, they have um, obviously the concerts are on, but they also seem to have some sort of freak show stuff seems to happen there. They have carnival rides. So they plug into lots of the, the, the visuals and the aesthetic of. Um, a carnival and of circus and they also have wrestling because although Insane Clown Posse moved away from wrestling they still are very fond of wrestling and wrestling also kind of ties into the whole aesthetic of the whole thing there's really interesting videos online of people being interviewed who go to this gathering of the jugglos every single year like it's almost a pseudo-religious event now it has to be said a large part of it also seems to involve taking a lot of drugs um but that's part of most music festivals um the thing that's really interesting is although they are sort of um categorized and 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 sort of demonized as being a violent group um um and some of that is to do with perhaps the the, the gang already of the group itself. Everyone you interviewed in all these videos that I've seen always are talking about love and brotherhood and family and these gatherings do seem to be remarkably peaceful uh, even for a music festival even compared to other more regular music festivals. Um, it's fascinating man. I, I, I mean like the music I'm still... It's cool. It's 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 not bad. Um, uh, you know, I'm still kind of struggling to really get into it. But just, I, I would love to go to this gathering of the Juggalos. It it just looks demented. It's got all the circus trappings. It's got this weird subculture vibe to it. Honestly, I don't really know what. I just I just love this man. I love everything about this. So, insane clown posse. I'm gonna keep listening to them. Um, uh, just.
just because the, the theory almost or the philosophy or story behind it is so interesting. Oh yes, that reminds me, all this talk of uh, clowns and circuses, I just remembered I actually went to the circus uh, very recently. Uh, I haven't been since I can like remember, I can't even remember going as a child to be honest. Um, but I was back in Ireland for a couple of days just visiting some family but also because my friend and the uh, cinematographer uh, from our short film Overseas Guide, uh, Crazy Chinese Tony, also wanted to come over for a couple of days because uh, he had a visa that he could visit Ireland with. Um, so we drove around in the rain. It rained every single fucking day he was there. And he was like, oh, I see. I'm starting to understand why you're like this. But that being said, we did have a, uh, a very good time. Uh, so anyway, on the last day we were there, Tony spotted a big top from the uh, dual carriageway and, and he said, oh, can we go to that? Uh, and of course, it turned out being his favourite thing from the whole fucking trip, you know, the, that traditional uh, Irish heritage of international circus acts um but yeah it was a it, the thing was called a circus extreme and it was it was fucking amazing man it's all humans uh, no animals or anything like that all human performers but they had like high wire and like the high wire stuff was crazy they were driving on bicycles and balancing on top of each other on top of each other and ah uh, it was it was crazy and they had these like massive rotating metal sort of I don't even know how to describe them, pendulum things that these lads were just running and jumping on. No safety nets, nothing like that. And then they had like a, oh, one of the, I think, what's it called? Is it the ball of death or the wheel of death or something? Basically where you have three motorbikes all driving around the inside of a metal sphere. And then there was other motorbikes jumping over the top of that. And there was, ah, and the, I, the whole thing was, uh, it was really amazing. Oh, and they did have a clown. They didn't have a troop of three clowns in the traditional mode. They just had one clown who also acted kind of as the ringmaster who got some people up on stage to kind of do clowning skits with him that worked quite well that was really interesting um so yeah really amazing uh, if you get a chance to go see circus extreme they're not in cork i don't think i think they're gone out of ireland now they'll still be in the uk for another while and then i think they go uh, you know they, they travel all around the world basically um and yeah def definitely if you get a chance to go see circus extreme uh, do so anyway moving on with our clown music exploration uh, gonna go away from the psycho crazy clowns and move towards the mellow jazzy clowns uh, with the Charles Mingus album The Clown from 1957. Charles Mingus, if you don't know, is one of the world's most famous, most um, accomplished and uh, accredited and everyone loves him, uh, uh, jazz musicians in the universe, in the known world. Uh, and uh, this is one of his lesser known uh, or less famous albums called The Clown. The cover art for this really is amazing. It is just like a man in clown face paint who you know uh doesn't look particularly happy uh, which is appropriate to the song the clown which is off the album the clown um uh, so there's loads of other amazing songs on here in particular i really like the song haitian fight song uh, but there's loads of uh, just amazing amazing jazz on this uh, quite short record but the track the clown itself is really really interesting it is actually uh jazz but it also is kind of experimental spoken word so it's as far as I could tell from the, the cursory amount of research I did, basically Charles Mingus kind of wrote the script for the clown uh, in terms of the, the lyrics, as obviously as well as writing the music. Uh, but then he invited uh, the actor and uh, performer Gene Shepard on to uh, basically improvise a version of the script that he had written, which is exactly what he does. Man, there was this clown. And he was a real happy guy, a real happy guy. 
He had all these greens and all these yellows and all these oranges bubbling around inside of him. And he had just one thing he wanted in this world. He just wanted to make people laugh. So it has a really interesting effect as there's, there's, there's lyrics or spoken word for a good part, then it kind of goes into instrumental, then the, the spoken word comes back again. The story of the clown, it's quite simple, but very, very effective in the way that it, it builds. Basically, there is a clown. He's trying to get um, people to laugh at him, to enjoy his, his performance, whereas actually he gets the most laughs from inadvertently or accidentally injuring himself during the course of different performances. There was this one night in Dubuque when he was playing this rotor club. All these dentists and all these druggists, all these postmen sitting around, and they were a real cold bunch. Nothing was happening. He was leaving the stage when he stumbled over his ladder and fell flat on his face, just flat on his face. And he stands up, he's got this bloody nose, he looks out at the crowd, and that crowd is just rolling on the floor. He's just knocked him flat out. As the song goes on, he accidentally at first and then intentionally later on injures himself more and more in order to get bigger and bigger laughs uh, right up until the end where it seems like, spoiler alert, perhaps he's you know injured himself too far and will not be able to perform. Uh, now apparently in the original um, written version, uh, Charles Mingus had him kill himself on stage, but then he said Gene Shepard kind of reinterpreted it in a way in a way that was slightly vaguer or more open to interpretation. And the last couple of lines, he the clown is basically saying, oh, he knows this is going to be the last one, but he, he doesn't really say if that's because he thinks he just can't continue because it's too demoralizing or because maybe he's injured himself or blah 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 blah. so it's re really interesting song um, in terms of the clownery we were talking about earlier on this is definitely more uh, to do with that tension between the performer and the character in terms of the happy face and the sad underneath um, but also plugs into the life of the stand-up comedian that I'm currently uh, sort of half living which is that yes it's mostly soul destroying <laughs> so yeah I highly recommend uh, the album The Clown by Charles Mingus uh, but definitely if you like that check out some of the other Charles Mingus stuffs as well uh, I've just started listening to some of his stuff and it is it's pretty fucking amazing so check that out I sound so insincere <sighs> I really mean it that's why I'm talking like this that's why there's no inflection in my voice because I really mean I do it is good though but I, I, I don't I don't you know you know you know what Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, do, do, do. This is what happens when you don't drink coffee and you can't get your sleep cycle right. Ding! Now, what's next? Our last bit of clown business to attend to for today is uh, Crazy Clown Time, uh, the album by David Lynch, released in uh, 2011. I have kind of heard of this before, although I didn't really listen to it before. Um, Crazy Clown Time is his second album. Uh, it is... Listen, if you like David Lynch, you're gonna... You, I think you'll like this. If you don't like David Lynch, I mean, what are the chances that you're gonna like this fucking garbage, you know? Uh, David Lynch doesn't actually compose the music for most of his films, as far as I know, um, but he has composed all the music for his musical albums. Now, that being said, there's definitely a lot of similarities in terms of the vibe and in terms of the um, the uh, soundscape uh, that is created, uh, so you're definitely going to get your fill of sonic David Lynch from this stuff. I love those tracks that are kind of like that slow, sultry, kind of, I don't know, is it jazzy or bluesy, sinister beat? 
that uh, Lynch puts into lots of the scenes, like, you know, bar scenes um, uh, from things like Twin Peaks and his other films as well. I love those, but you, so you have that stuff, but you also have this really sort of avant-garde sort of um, screech, and David Lynch sings on this as well, so you get his weird squeaky voice um, uh, singing some of the lyrics as well. Uh, so that sort of all combined together, um, this sort of real smooth kind of stuff, and then the really discordant stuff, really just, you know, it's David Lynch all over, isn't it? Um, so uh, the song uh, from Crazy Clown uh, Time, uh, called Crazy Clown Time, is uh, particularly good as well. I'm just going to play a little excerpt from it here. And I highly recommend the music video for that as well. It really, it is just demented. This kind of um, uh, lots of the uh, the characters in the in the, in the music video um, are kind of like I don't know, stomping their feet rhythmically throughout the whole thing. It just all takes place in some kind of a backyard kind of situation. It just has this real sort of sinister um, uh, air to the whole thing, and it seems very much like it is a sort of a lamp. As lots of David Lynch stuff is, is is a sort of a a lampooning or a focusing in on the darker sides of the um, American psyche, American in particular, uh, I would say. So, Crazy Clown Time, if you like David Lynch, definitely check out the album. I haven't listened to any of his other stuff, but after listening to this, I definitely think I will give it a listen. Right, right, on the topic of clown podcasts, this one's been harder. As I mentioned briefly earlier on, uh, there is a podcast called Decoder Ring um, from Slate uh, that in 2018 did a really good podcast about clowns now like I said I didn't 100% agree with everything they said in the clown podcast but that episode was still really really good and the podcast in general just seems to be pretty excellent as well so I would say check out Decoder Ring by Slate that's that's clown adjacent um, and then the other podcast uh, that I found because I was I was digging you know I don't have a lot of clown podcast in my arsenal was the release the clowns improvised comedy podcast uh, when i first saw the icon for this podcast i was like oh jesus man what is this gonna be i gotta get something clown adjacent for the podcast um but i was really really surprised these guys are they're great improvisers or sketch writers and what i absolutely love 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 about the show is that it, it's light-hearted it's not political it's not at all mean-spirited or cynical it's just it's just goofy nonsense and now Marlon Brando and Rod Steiger in on So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in the ballpark. And what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You remember about it, Charlie. You should learn how to do a little bit. You should have taken care of me too, Baba. 
a little bit. You know what? We need more goofy nonsense in the world. So it was a bit of a random find, but I have to say, really highly recommend Release the Clowns podcast. I think it's interesting that I chose this subject of clowns for this week, and then I, I did. I found new stuff by doing that. Um, so uh, one thing me and my brothers sometimes talk about is, you know, how do you find new music? How do you find new movies? Whatever it is, um, uh, besides just the regular channels. Well, one way to do it is to do it historically, and that's something that Michael... Uh, my brother Michael's doing at the moment he's kind of going through the history of music but another way to do it is to do it thematically uh, so just to pick a topic uh, like for example in this case clowns uh, and then see what you can find around them in different forms of media uh, and I have to say it's worked out so well that I think I will probably do it again and it's definitely something that you could try at home just get yourself some PVA glue some folded newspaper and a deep well of sadness and away you go Oh, fucking gay. <laughs> uh, I think that's about all I'm going to be able to manage. The thought of the day for today is get your shit in order. Get yourself together. You didn't think I'd ever say that, did you? Well, now, let me clarify. I don't mean, you know, uh, get, you know, get a real job and go to real school. What I'm specifically talking about is your health is your body, is your, your sleep cycles, your um, consumption of drugs, alcohol and food, you know? Uh, that's something that I'm trying to focus on uh, at the moment, just trying to uh, giving up caffeine and thinking about sleep and trying to get more sleep in. I'm listening to an audiobook at the moment. Uh, it's called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And basically, there's just a lot of, uh, lot of evidence out there that suggests that if you're not sleeping properly, you are literally taking um, uh, years off your life and you're you're having your own potential for productivity as well. So when I say get your shit together, I mean get your body together. Because guess what? This is the thing that keeps you in existence, yeah? And in the end, everybody does fall apart. But there's a lot of stuff you can do to stop you from falling apart from longer. And you know, lots of people are like, oh, well, you know, I want I would focus on my health, but I've got this going on and that going on. Of course, I understand that. I mean, I'm a completely irresponsible jackass. I have no responsibilities. It's easier for me to say. But if you're talking about prioritizing things in your life, trying to stay alive and stay healthy is good for you. It's good for your family. It's good for your friends. It's good for everybody. So if you've been putting off uh, thinking about that, uh, start thinking about it because we're, we're all dying. We're all rotting meat bags and uh, let's try to reduce that rot. Okie dokie. That's all for now. Fuck you, Friday. Fuck me. Fuck you. Fuck you. Ah. Fuck, 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 fucking, 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 f